Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Anyway, as I was saying, Shadi, uh, this is what, like, is it our fourth episode since the war started? I think so. Yeah, I believe uh, so. And I, uh, uh, in, in no way, in no way do I feel more at ease uh, with it. How are you finding, like, talking about this stuff in public in real time? But can you say more about what you don't feel at ease about? Well, I don't know. Um, uh, these are just, like, very complex issues, historically complex you know, uh, it's far too easy to, to, uh, I mean, I don't have like a real stake in the fight. Uh, so it's easier for me not to get carried away with rhetoric. Um, but I do have my priors and my priors sort of push me towards, you know, uh, sounding perhaps more callous than I'd want to sound. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that sort of fills me with some anxiety because, I do feel like I want to watch what I say in that regard because I don't think I'm callous about these things, but I do think that one, um, you know, I, I do have priors about about uh, about morality and things like that, and I, I do think that, um, you know, uh, talking about moral clarity is often not clarifying. Um, I guess is really what it comes down to, and that's that's sort of a an important prior and. Saying such things is is really hard when uh, you know everything in your social media feeds and on the TV news and the headlines is suffused with such carnage and violence. So that's really what I'm talking about. Um, but you don't seem to care much about appearing callous on other issues. So why? Wh- how? I mean, I, mean I, I feel like I, I I tried my hardest to be true to myself and not be like. Uh, how do I put it? Um, no, I just mean appearances. Gratuitously, I, I, well, gratuitously yeah. callous on Ukraine. I mean, I feel like there's there's plenty of parallels. You know what I mean? I, I've I've I I, I have been um, not terribly happy with how we have been talking about the Ukraine war. Not me and you, but just like you know how the United States has moralized and crusaded about it. And it's it's not with with some level of schadenfreude that I don't see it sort of blowing it, it blowing up in the United States face when it stands with Croatia alone in the UN supporting Israel. I don't know if you saw that, like Croatia was like one of two countries in Europe that voted with the United States. Wow. Um, okay. But, uh, but it's, um, yeah, you know, I, it, it's, I, I mean, I think these are all sort of own goals because I, I, I do think that that uh, and this is you know the enduring difference between you and me is you know the question of what is foreign policy for and I think you would answer it as you know to promote justice on some level I think maybe that's too 
too uh, narrow a way. But I mean, I remember even in early episodes, you would challenge me. It's like, you know, why, why even bother with foreign policy if you're not like doing good? Mm. Um, and I, I, I've, I've always pushed back on that. Um, but it's a, it's a tough thing to push back on, especially when people's, you know, are just getting blown up in front of you. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's my question is, because I think that you're always true to your position and you, you care less about how other people will perceive it as, you know, and there, that's part of what integrity is, that you're not kind of modulating too much what you say publicly based on fears that people will get the wrong idea. But it is interesting to me that this weighs on you more in this particular case. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know how I'd put it. I guess that's why I'm nervous about like doing it in real time, because I, I think that that there are important ways that one should talk about this along the line that's perfectly aligned with my first principles in a way that is not gratuitous yeah, and that is not uh, alienating gratuitously. Uh, I'm, 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 it has to be alienating on some level, but that is not cruel. That is not, uh, that is not just easy to dismiss, I guess, is the thing. Um, it's not so much that like, I'm terrified that, you know, people say like, my God, he's a monster. Um, <laughs> it's more, it's more that, that, uh, you know, you see it on like on on every side of this debate, and I don't even mean uh, between uh, you know Israelis and uh, and Palestinians and and Arabs and um, and and Jews more broadly, but you just see it on all sides of the debate. It's it's it like we've seen in almost everything else that 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 has sort of dominated public discussion, right? It just ends up being. Um, some facet of this this idiotic culture war and and point scoring and and team team building and line drawing and and crusades and the rest of that um, and it's it's uh and I, it's it's more it's it really is more 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 uh, heat than light right um, when it sort of yeah. boils down to that so I, I, I mean guess, that's just yeah. that's just on that part why 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 I get nervous about it because I, I do think that you know especially in real time when you're debating such difficult issues. Uh, it's very easy to uh, to even get caught up in your priors, right? I think one should try and and be honest and as like faithful to one's priors and and as we do on the show, like constantly query them. Um, but it's also really easy is to just sort of get wrapped up in it and just be like, you know, uh, well, this is what it is, and then just sort of get really dogmatic about it. You have to leave room to be challenged, I guess. And, and, you know, which is like, hard. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I guess this is what I struggle with is I'm getting a lot of, um, maybe not a lot, but definitely significant criticism from folks on my own side on this, you know, uh, if we want to call my side, the, the pro-Palestine side or what have you, and from Arab Americans, Muslim Americans about, like why I haven't said certain things or taken certain positions. And even a non-Arab friend was just texting me the other day and she was asking if I was going to the pro-Palestine protests that's happening in DC Are you? this weekend. Are you and I go? said, and I said, no. Why not? I, you know, I honestly, I was going to go like, and just, and, and okay. Uh, I mean, and walk I can around. go as go? like, let's go. I can go as like an observer and, you know, as part of my journalist hat, 
and just yeah. seeing what the vibe is, I'd be very interested to see. But I think she wasn't so much asking me, Shadi, are you interested in observing the protest? She's like, okay, we're all doing this. It's time. Yeah. And are you going to, are you going to show up? She and, wasn't saying and, like, let's get a taco afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I told her like, listen, I mean, um, I, I, I don't really see that as my role, but also I don't know if I a hundred percent agree with the idea of an immediate unconditional ceasefire. I think that one needs to put proper thought into what a ceasefire looks like. You can't just go out and do a protest and call for a ceasefire and then the ceasefire falls from the sky. Right. Like there just has to be a little like this is not this is not just about the right slogans. It's about actually trying to bring about better outcomes. And I think that and again, like I'm, I am somewhat reticent to say what I'm about to say right now to Arab Americans and so forth. But, you know, it, I guess I, it has to be said, you know, I, I don't think a ceasefire proposal that doesn't take into account like Israel's security concerns vis-a-vis -vis Hamas is really like is plausible. I mean, you can have a humanitarian pause that is temporary, but at some point you have to be able to say something about Hamas's military capabilities. I mean, it's not really realistic to say that Israel is just going to accept that Hamas survives and is able to still have capacity for launching rockets or, you know, other military maneuvers against against Israel. I mean, that just that just seems like a non-starter to me. There there are two sides to a ceasefire conversation and I don't know, like am I being it, Almost as I'm saying this, I feel like I'm not like I'm not being a good progressive or not being a good, um, you know, pro-Palestinian voice. But I guess at some level, I don't really see my primary role as a pro a pro-Palestine voice. Like I'm I'm an analyst, right? I, here, let me let me ask you this though, um, as someone who has much less sort of again like personal emotional stakes in it. Um, I've also felt, though, differently that that the analysis doesn't even matter at this point, um, and and that's the part that's that's uh, that I'm sort of grappling with, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, we're recording this um, the night before uh, the Hezbollah leader Nasrallah is supposed to give a, a landmark speech, which may or may not be a landmark speech. So, you know, try not to date this conversation about that. We'll see, we'll see where the whole conflict is while this uh, episode's going live. Um, but, uh, you know, it's even when you were describing there um, the preconditions for a ceasefire, uh, I, I, I just, you know, you just peel the onion back and I'm not sure what any of it means. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, I, 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 Imagine you're saying a preconditions for a ceasefire need to be something along the lines of uh, Israelis committing to some kind of process afterwards, uh, some kind of vision for restoring a legitimate government to the Palestinians afterwards in Gaza, if not in the West Bank, real credible moves towards a two-state solution, um, and all of that. But that and, that. and that's all fine, and it sounds good, uh, the sort of thing that, you know, 
oh, I, it's a it's a lovely thing that'd be great for the Washington Post to publish. And as a reader, oh, that sounds good. That's a plan. We've got a plan. We're going forward. But it, it seems it seems so besides the point on some like really profound level. Um, just I don't know if you saw uh, a couple hours ago. Um, I think the Israeli military released, and then uh, I think Gazan authorities, so I guess Hamas, uh, verified that uh, the IDF has in fact bisected the, the Gaza Strip right now. Uh, Gaza City is now completely isolated from the south. They're holding a chunk of land, and the IDF is also in the north. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was, as, that, as a, that map sort of popped up on my Twitter feed and seems to be legitimate at this point, um, I was thinking back to some of the things that, uh, you know, military leaders, Israelis were saying was like, you know, after this is done, there'll be no more Hamas, okay, um, and there will be, you know, uh, not all of Gaza is going back to the Palestinians. There will be a buffer zone. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, oh, buffer zone. So what are the, I mean, it seems strategically sort of dumb. So like, you know, a cordon uh, of a couple of kilometers all around, so shrinking it internally like that. And then, okay, so a little less land and how much more security is that? But then it dawned on me, maybe the buffer zone is just basically Gaza City, which is about to be leveled. Um, and then the population of 2 million uh, Palestinians to be squeezed in half of what Gaza was in the south. I, you know, and I have no idea. I'm speculating wildly here. There's been no, you know, the military has been quite silent on this. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, just it's it's so many things are unknown. So many, I'm not even sure the Israelis have any kind of plan for uh, for exactly what they're shooting for here. So So there's just like, there's the logic of events. There's the logic of military events of what the Israeli IDF thinks they need to do to secure this and crush Hamas. What kind of facts on the ground that leaves? Never mind the the you know potential veto that that Iran, uh, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and and Hamas itself has on any sorts of plans and decisions. It seems to me that like all the analysis we do on this, I I just I I, I just fall short on it. Basically, it's just like. Well, that's great. I like the sound of that. And then still it's like events, dear boy, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. we're just, we're, we're. But what we can, but I would say this, what we can do and what I, I've been trying to do is to propose a more plausible ceasefire, one that actually has a realistic chance of being implemented by taking seriously some of these other questions. And if we, you know, if if we as writers and analysts can push the conversation in that direction, then it does make a ceasefire more likely. And it also makes a ceasefire more likely to stick if it's well thought out and if it does address some of these deeper questions. Because the risk of uh, of a ceasefire is that it doesn't hold, and then we're back to square one, and then we're having the same conversation all over again. Um, and um, I mean, look, in my but there is also a part of me that wants to say, like, in my in my ideal world, of course, I want to cease fire right at this very moment as we speak. But then. Like, I also know that Israel is never going to agree to many of the things that we wanted to agree to. So the, I think this is a question of unfortunately, we have actors and maybe this is what you're getting at and and. You know, in Matt Iglesias's discussion of my ceasefire proposal, which he sort of amusingly called the Hamid plan, 
he sort of gets at this like okay that this is a nice ceasefire plan but it it talks a, it assumes or it wants to believe in an Israel that is very different than the Israel that we currently have like so for Israel to credibly commit to a genuine peace process I, I even hesitate to use that phrase peace process because it just sounds so absurd but like Netanyahu doesn't believe in a two-state solution. He doesn't want a Palestinian state. So, and this is, I think, a legitimate point from from Matt Iglesias, which is, um, how can we how can we move in that direction if one of the strongest parties in this conflict, or the strongest party in this conflict, the Israeli government, doesn't believe in the very existence of a Palestinian state? They don't believe. Yeah that Palestine has a right to exist, to, to just, maybe use a different formulation. Just to give Matt his due, though, he also, you know, I don't think his article is in any way both sidesing, but he does say, he does both sides of that one. He says, actually, we don't, you know, in Hamas, you don't have, uh, you know, a partner that could do that. And in the Hamid peace plan, I mean, uh, there was there was that point three, which I think Matt dings very 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 nicely, which was basically you know enforce Hamas to basically come to the table for negotiations and renounce violence and all these other things. And and I think Matt's sort of ding. I don't have the the essay in front of me. Was basically was like, well, that all amounts to uh, let's come up with a peace plan where the warring parties have starkly different preferences. Than they have. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. which is like you know the economists uh, on the desert island, uh, you know you know that old joke like comes with, you know they, he and his another guy come across like a canned product and no can opener, and <laughs> economists says, assume a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I look I, in my defense, so I didn't say that Hamas has to renounce violence. That's like pushing it. That's not part of the plan because it's just not realistic that Hamas would do that like unilaterally. Uh, but but I mean. But I do think it is possible. I think we do have to think about what it means to try to re reintegrate Hamas elements like low or mid-level cadres into a future Palestinian authority that it is legitimate for Israel to target and try to kill or arrest senior Hamas military commanders because they are the ones who are responsible for the October 7th massacres. But Hamas is a mass movement. And there are tens of thousands of members, hundreds of thousands of sympathizers and supporters. You can't just erase Hamas. This is not like Al-Qaeda post 9-11. It's not even like ISIS in Iraq or Syria. ISIS was largely a foreign intrusion, or at least significantly a foreign intrusion in at least some of the territory that it held, where you had um, a significant portion of the leadership who were not Iraqi or not Syrian. Um, so, but Hamas is part of Palestinian society. So you can't just say, so I, I'm trying to think through what it means to, um, how do you reintegrate Hamas elements the day after? Because you don't want something comparable to debathification as we saw in Iraq. You need to, you need to be realistic about these things. Um, and so uh, anyway, but you can say more about what you take issue with, you know, in terms of the Hamas parts of like what I suggested. And we'll include no. a link to the show notes yeah. to these different uh, pieces. But I guess what I was trying to do was to think creatively about 
how do we talk about Hamas the day after? Because I just don't think it's realistic in the other direction to say Hamas is eliminated, done, let's move on. Like that's just not a serious way of talking about Gaza. Considering, totally yeah. No, I mean, but again, it's just like it, it's it's. Uh, but it 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 it. it it pivots off my essay on Hamas, right? Like in that in that question, and it's it's unanswered. I mean, you know, one of the things I think you brought up with me with me uh, in person shortly after, or maybe before I wrote the essay, um, and it keeps bubbling up um, that you know uh, Hamas succeeded beyond its wildest uh, dreams and now nightmares. Uh, you know that that um, now again I can't judge whether this is. Um, uh, smart sort of talking points to muddy the waters or what it is or isn't. But let's even, you know, grant it that they, that they um, you know, succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. And in that case, uh, my argument for uh, the sort of revolutionary logic of Hamas um, doesn't fully hold up, that they didn't intend to become, to legitimate themselves so completely. I mean, partially, certainly, violence legitimates this, but, you know, they they... It, it went a lot further than they anticipated. They have more hostages than they intended to have. Um, and now they have, you know, the United States and and uh, Israel weighing down, like, completely and threatening their eradication, which they presumably didn't intend. Um, you know, the the I guess what I'm getting at is the unknowable here is the extent to which um, that is true, and if that is true, whether... Um, there is such a thing as a Hamas moderate. Um, I saw someone else tweeting about this, and again, I, I, I just, I just don't know enough about the movement, um, and I think very few people outside of it can definitively say anything about it. But what kind of debates are going on between the military leaders and the political leadership in Qatar and the rest of that about uh, strategy and what they hope to achieve? Whether these divisions that you know bubble up so often in some journalistic reports are real or, again, you know, uh, means of adaptation, means of sort of uh, muddying the waters and means of signaling something or the other. Um, I, you know, my, my, I guess my strongest, uh, the only way I could see your plan working uh, would be if that break really manifested itself publicly. If the political leadership uh, in Qatar said, uh, you know, uh, we are raising the white flag and want to negotiate, um, you know, uh, whatever, our cause is just, but we need to stand down because too many of our, our brothers and sisters are getting killed right now. Um, and if that schism appeared between the military leadership and the political leadership, if that, if that line makes any sense to even draw... I think that gives you an opening because even you said like, you know, kill or or bring to justice one way or the other or try uh, the military leadership of Hamas. Um, you need to, I think, create a very strict line between political and military leadership. And that would have to come from Hamas itself, that the quote unquote political leadership would have to break strongly against its military leadership. I find that very hard to imagine happening at a time like this is because it's a gambit about delegitimization. Again, even within the institution, um, you see this. I mean, you've seen these sort of uh, these military political inside Gaza guys, um, you know, 
talking unrepentantly uh, and giving statements that that you know quite, quite frankly are are counterproductive. Our our good friend Zach Beecham uh, cracked some joke about that they have a bad PR department, you know, and then he got properly jumped on by that by saying like, what PR department? They're speaking the truth. I'm I'm torn about this. I don't know. I I don't know enough. I don't know. You know how just to for do background. This. What what did this um, spokes the, this spokesperson or Hamas representative say? Just so reader, reader uh, readers and I'll, listeners, I'll, I'll dig it up. I, I'm not. I don't remember what which one Zach was actually talking about. Mm. One was basically that he was saying uh, the tunnels are for the fighters. Uh, the uh, and and the civilians are the responsibility of the UN and and the Israelis. Um, <laughs> Uh, things like that. Uh, oh, and there was the other one he said. He said, uh, uh, no repentance for October 7th, and we'll do it again and again. I, I think those are the two clips oh, yeah, that, yeah, that, right, that, that right. surfaced up. I, you know, doesn't sound like a, like a movement that's quite ready to, to you know, that, that to me is, it makes me feel like my, my call on the revolutionary stuff is, is right on. Now, again, you know, as an analyst, we can, as analysts, we can talk about what cleavages exist, might exist, how they can be exploited and all the rest of that. But it seems so abstract to me right now. Again, and it's just, I fall back on this like logic of events, like with every passing day, avenues just get closed off and uh, the room for maneuver just becomes more and more constricted. And again, as I've now for three episodes talked about, I, I'm still my eyes on the bigger picture. Uh, where this all goes and and or where it doesn't go, um, but anyway, that's 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 my my yeah my thoughts on on you know your your peace proposal and like point three in it exactly maybe a little bit more detailed and more charitable than what Matt said, but like um, <laughs> anyway that that that's that's my thought. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. Where, where, no, what do you, all what do you good make stuff there, but um, look, we're not going to solve. We're not going to. Look, my my intent with laying some of this in the post, um, you know, and uh, I, I did go into some more detail in the wisdom of crowds sort of extended version of it. Initially, I had put some of these six points on Twitter um, first, but um, this was really just an attempt for me to think constructively and to try to be to try to push the conversation in a positive direction. Yeah. But obviously, anything that we propose is going to seem fantastical, just because, as you say, the situation on the ground is just so depressing and devastating that a lot of this, a lot of this talk about the day after, just seems so far away from where we're at today. Yeah. But in the end, I just saw it as a way to start a conversation, and I'm glad to see that a you know a number of people have responded and have engaged. Yeah. With what I laid out there. Um, you know, I do want to ask you, though, about um, what's your sense as someone who's not Arab American and not um, Muslim American of how of how um, like how do you see the pro-Palestine side in this ongoing debate in Washington and in the U.S.? Forget about the Middle East for a second. It's a different, you know, very different context. But. I feel like I'm I'm sort of engaging with, you know, fellow Arab and Muslim Americans on a regular basis and I'm on various group chats and I can really see the sense of de despair really in the Arab American community about how the Biden administration is approaching the Israel Hamas war and the kind of perceived insensitivity 
of President Biden and other senior officials when it comes to talking about Palestinian lives and sometimes being very cavalier in their statements. The infamous one now, of course, is Biden questioning the the Palestinian death toll and sort of seeming to, um, in a very patronizing, demeaning way, saying, oh, we can't even trust the Palestinians when they count their own dead, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I was glad to see the Washington Post, you know, um, issue a, a somewhat exhaustive fact check of Biden's claims. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. I thought it was very good in basically saying, like, Biden really, sh- like, this was not a good look on Biden's part, yeah. so on and so forth. But w- do you think when you look at activists, because you're very much a non-activist, I mean, I'm not either, but at least I know a lot of them. And I, I try to keep my ear to the activist ground because it's just very interesting to me to see how the Arab American community is um, is dealing with what's going on. I think it is a really profound sense of dislocation of of being alienated from the Democratic Party, being alienated from the Biden administration. But how how do you see all that? Uh, it's a tough question. I don't know how to how to how to tackle it. I mean, I see it as activism, which I I think you know it's understandable. I, I guess perfectly understandable. I, I do wonder whether it's it's good, um, <laughs> in the sense that um, I mean, there's been a, a I mean, I'm, I think I can answer with a couple of questions back at you. Um, well, okay, let me say this. To your point about dislocation, uh, I thought one of the most striking and penetrating things that uh, Robert Nicholson said last week, in admittedly an episode that w- that was chock full of it, um, of interesting and penetrating. And things. guys, and I'll just reiterate: if if you did not listen to our previous episode with Robert Nicholson, yeah, just go do that. Find some time for it. I really do think it's one of the best episodes we've ever done. Yeah. It was emotional. It was raw. And I like I did not know like all of that was going to happen. Like we went all over the place and went in some very interesting directions. But yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he said one thing and it was when he was discussing the 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 the, the hospital uh, bombing um, and uh, what happened there. He said like, you know, he said completely said like he, he very deftly dodged uh, the question of what happened and just sort of focused in on the reaction to it. And he said um, what struck him most was um, that uh, he, as uh, an American Christian, immediately jumped to the conclusion that, of course, Israel wouldn't do it. And he knows the IDF, and the IDF wouldn't do something like that willingly. It's a catastrophe for them. But for all sorts of reasons, even without analyzing it, he immediately was just like, well, obviously Israel didn't do it. That's absurd. And uh, he said, uh, you know, you, Shadi, and, 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 you know, presumably— a lot of uh, Muslim Americans saw that and immediately said, "Well, obviously Israel does did this. This is what they always do. They 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 hit some civilian target on purpose or not, and then lie about it." Well, just and, clarify, I, that was that was not something that I said. He he was no, talking more broadly about Arab. About Americans. no, he, was, yeah. he he said to you, he said, "Shadi, you yeah. perhaps and and, and oh uh, yeah 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 okay." Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah, to make that clear to to listeners, um, and uh. uh and yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's that sort of like cultural cleavage. So I, I imagine like that's 
dislocating for uh, a lot of Muslim Americans. And, and you know, I, I, the reason what really sort of jumped out at me, let me pull it up here because uh, I saved it, um, our, our, our uh, missing discussant, Matt Iglesias, tweeted uh, something earlier today, and he said, uh, Twitter blindness means a lot of people don't see the swath of American opinion that thinks Biden should be more pro-Israel, even though it's larger than the group that thinks he's been too supportive. And then, you know, we can link to that tweet, and you see some, like, quick polling data on that. Uh, but the numbers are, 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 are you know, not, not close. Um, and then uh, another yeah, but tweet— but they're not close for people who are old. If you look at the eighteen to thirty-four demographic, yeah, I I, w- I want to talk about the youth thing because I, I think that's that that gets us into an interesting place and in about democracy and the rest of that. But you know, just hold that one for a second. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that jumped out again. Let me see. Is this one by age? Yeah, this one actually is by age. Um, but I haven't studied it, so I'm not going to try and read it right now. But I'll just read the tweet. Uh, so the vast majority of Americans say that Hamas is quote mostly responsible for any civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. 63% blame Hamas and only 13% blame Israel. Uh, at least a plurality blame Hamas in every demo. This is where there's no real push for a ceasefire in the United States. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I, you know, I cite those two things as, you know, I, I, you know I, I, when I read those two things, I could, I, I could understand that what you're describing is a sense of dislocation and alienation uh, from the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, as a matter of like democratic politics, this is what, you know, a voting bloc in a democracy would do is try and hold, quote unquote, their party to account and threaten walking away and uh, not being part of it. And part of that is like deeply felt, uh, but also part of that I, I believe is is a product of the moment, and you know uh, we're still a year away from the election. So I, I I'm not I, I'm not sure one should conclude yeah. too much from that. Like the war is still ongoing, and many things can change, policy can change, and all the rest of that. So I mean that's just democratic interest group politics. It's what you do is you you raise a stink, you're very loud about it, you say you're going to walk away in a huff, uh, and then get concessions from uh, from the the political party that that. Uh, you claim represents you, but still, yeah. as a background to that, you know, it's it's these poll findings, which is that you know what Robert was getting at, right? This uh, almost instinctive American uh, sympathy uh, for Israel, which again, you know, uh, I think it's, it's yeah. Look, but n- not yeah, to do on. like a competition of polls, but I, I think you're. I think you, what you say is right about certain demographics in America, especially older ones. There mm-hmm. there was a poll from it's a it's from a progressive firm, but you know, it's been reported on quite a bit. Um from it's from the firm Data for Progress. And they found that 66% of likely US voters strongly or somewhat agree that the US should call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that it was worded the question was kind of like a a leading question it was sort of like would you you support support dead babies and american (laughs) blood like american (laughs) dead baby blood on american hands yeah Yeah. but it was sort of it was like you know obviously um you know that's a slightly hyperbolic but but (laughs) but it was like 
it was sort of saying like, oh, a ceasefire that prevents civilian loss of life. And it just kind of like pushing people to just be human beings, sort of. Yeah, right. There was another there was another poll by Quinnipiac, <laughs> which found that slightly more than half of voters under 35 say they disapprove of the U.S. sending additional military support to Israel after the October 7th Hamas attack. And but but um, but the rest of the de- the older demographics, especially if you go like 50 and 60 and above, they're like they're like all for sending you know weapons to Israel. So that's where you kind of start to see some of this generational gap. Yeah. But but I think I'd make a broader point, though, and say that the the progressive activists have been effective in putting the question of a ceasefire at the forefront of the public debate. I, you know, I saw earlier, I haven't gone into a lot of detail about um, the specifics, but Senator Dick Durbin, um, I believe, was the first senator to call for a ceasefire um, the day that we're recording this. So clearly something, something is moving. The fact, and at some point you have to give credit where it's due. Activists may not be realistic. They may not be calling for something that's particularly plausible. But by being so vocal in progressive spaces, that is something that it appears Democratic politicians are feeling. And if that gets results where it gets a growing number of Democratic politicians to contend with the call for a ceasefire, then that's, shouldn't that count for something? And I would also say that there's the fact that these progressive activists are shifting the Overton window. By calling for an unconditional ceasefire, they're expanding the bounds of acceptable discourse. So now, you know, you have a lot of people calling for humanitarian pauses as a kind of compromise middle ground option. That's not maybe not ideal, but that's great. But but I think that that's only possible if you have people calling for something a lot more than a humanitarian pause, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. 